Now for you and for me, the dreams we have, the hopes, the expectations, the prayers for healing, those don't always get answered in the same visible way that Joseph's did. But there is a hope and a healing for you and me. Our hope is this. Maybe our prayers will get answered here and now. Maybe our miracle will come in this life. Maybe those dreams will come true now. Maybe they won't. But either way, we have a God who is good. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. About 11 years ago, I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, an opportunity that truly disappointed me. Yet you ever been there? You see, I was invited to join a group of guys on a men's retreat and go out to Colorado, and we were going to hike and fish and do all these manly things I'm not used to doing, and I was super excited. Don't worry, women can do those things too, okay? But this was just for men, and we're out on this retreat, and I was super excited. We were going to hike a couple of 14,000-foot peaks. So like, think LeConte, double, and then some. Yeah, I was super excited and very unfit and unprepared. And we had a rule that this was just for men 13 and older. We had a dad come to us and say, I would like to bring my 13-year-old son. Can I? Sure. There's one problem. He's paraplegic and wheelchair-bound. Can he still join us? Sure, we'll find a way. We'll make it happen. So that year, we went out, all of us, to the mountains, and we enjoyed our time. And when the day had come to hike, we put this 13-year-old boy in a homemade sling, and we carried him to the top of a 14,000-foot peak. It took about 30 of us together taking turns and switching out and making sure he didn't fall to the side either way. And it was this incredibly moving experience. See, I'd been teaching this 13-year-old boy in confirmation class, which is like, here's the basics of what we believe. And I was teaching him about our faith. And over the year prior, he'd really begun to become super downtrodden. Junior high, especially 13, is tough for most people. But imagine all of that challenge and all of that change within you being bound to a wheelchair. It had been incredibly tough for him. And so the, in the weeks leading up to this hike, I just found myself overwhelmed because I started having these incredibly realistic visions and dreams where I would see us on the top of the mountain with this boy 
In the story in Mark, where friends bring their friend who can't walk and lower him through the roof, that kept coming to my mind. And in these dreams on the top of the mountain, this boy got out of that sling and walked down with us. And I was so convinced that this would take place. So the whole hike up for hours as we went up this mountain, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. God, if those dreams can come true, let them come true today. God, if you can do healing and miracles, do it today. Because how cool would that be? On the top of a mountain, his first steps in his life are coming down. Please, God. I was so certain and so sure this would happen. And we got to the top of the mountain and we gathered around and I shared that story and we prayed and nothing. So I prayed again and nothing. Finally, a third time we prayed and then we put him back in the sling and we walked back down. And I was so disappointed what I was certain would be a life-changing moment, a miracle for all to see, what I was certain would be this incredible memory for him and for everybody else, what I was so certain would be God at work among us, left me so disappointed. As we conclude this series on managing our expectations, what do we do when God disappoints? What do we do when we pray and we hope and we believe and it still doesn't happen? Then what? What do we do? You see, I think we're all justified to believe that God does good for his people. In fact, you read scripture and there's time and time again where God releases healing miraculously upon people who don't deserve it. Where God raises the dead where God provides an abundance so that all have what they need. And there's time and time again in scripture where it talks about the Lord doing good for those who love him and all these things. And yet sometimes the good that we need him to do doesn't happen. We pray and we pray and we pray and cancer rears its ugly head. And our loved ones die and our relationships fall apart No matter how hard we seek God, he seems just out of reach. And we're disappointed. Today we're going to look at the story of a man who had every reason to be really disappointed in God. And in the story of this man, there are times that are left out that I imagine he went through a lot of pain and disappointment. Times in his story where it just skips forward while he's in the midst of great pain and suffering. The story we're going to look at today is a man named Joseph, found in Genesis, beginning in chapter 37. Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. If you recall, Jacob, he's the grandson of Abraham. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Jacob is given these promises that his children would carry on that promise of of God, that they would become multiplied and they would grow and they would bless all the nations. And he was given this hope and this assurance. And Jacob was his favorite son. I know we should not have favorite sons, but if you have kids, it just happens. Usually my favorite is whichever one's listening in the moment. So it changes every few minutes. But Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. 
because he's the firstborn son to his favorite wife, Rachel. And so Joseph is blessed abundantly by his dad, given this special coat and all of his other 11 brothers look at Joseph with contempt. It doesn't help that he's among the youngest. Like imagine your younger brother, if you have younger siblings, being treated like the favorite. Now, if you're a middle child, you know that's just true and deal with it, right? There's no hope. But it gets worse because Joseph has these grandiose dreams of what the future may hold. Chapter 37, beginning in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Love the family tension there. Probably need some therapy. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Hmm. I had this dream where everybody, all of you, bowed down to me. Imagine your younger brother saying this to you. I, no wonder they hated him even more. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. It continues, he has a second dream and he tells them of the second dream. And finally, Jacob steps in. He's like, look, Joseph, you can't say these things. You have no idea how much they're gonna pummel you. Like your brothers will beat the tar out of you. Just, you can't say these things because they're gonna get really jealous. Stop it. So we fast forward a little bit to verse 18. His brothers go out with their flock and they're in the fields and his, his dad says, go and find them and just see how it's going. Just check up on them. So verse 18, as he's traveling to meet his brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Talk about some family problems, right? Look, it's not enough just to leave him be in the wilderness by himself. It's not enough just to be mad at him. No, we need to actually make a plan to kill our brother. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Like we know how to squash what God is doing. We'll just kill him and then God can't do anything with him. These dreams have to be fake. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Sounds like one of the brothers had a change of heart. But as you'll read a little later, Reuben had no intention of honoring Joseph. In fact, Reuben had gotten into some trouble with his dad earlier and had lost out on the blessing. And so wanting to get his dad's favor back and earn that blessing, he thinks, if only I rescue Joseph, then my dad will love me more and then I'll get all the things I want and then it will go well to me. If you ever think the Bible's filled of really good people who seem to have it all together, just take a moment and read it again. They're kind of a hot mess. Continues. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. 
And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there's no water in it. Imagine being Joseph, having multiple dreams in which it's very clear you will one day be in a position greater than your older siblings. As a middle child, there's no better dream you could have. Imagine being in this place of Joseph coming to do your father's will, living a good and upright life, trying to honor him and others, and you show up and your brothers have plotted to throw you in a pit and leave you to die. What would you think or feel about your brothers or about your God who made these promises and gave you this terrible family? So, the story continues, and we'll skip a few verses here, a chapter even, but what happens in the upcoming story is they have a slight change of heart. Specifically, Judah, one of the brothers, says, hey, instead of killing him, what if we sell him into slavery, because that's better, right? Instead of killing him, what if we sell him, and then we can have some money, we can still act like he's dead, he's out of our hair, no problem. So they sell him to the Egyptians, And he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is a a man of great statue in the the, the civilization of Egypt, in that kingdom. He has a lot of wealth. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of authority. And Joseph grows in Potiphar's favor. The more Joseph is there as a slave, the more Potiphar trusts him so that everything Potiphar has is at Joseph's disposal. Except one thing. And this is where, once again, Joseph finds himself in trouble. In chapter 39, beginning in verse 6, there's this little tidbit about Joseph that comes in handy. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, a.k.a. he was ripped. He looked good. He was great to stare at. And that sets the the tone for what's coming next. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Uh Uh-oh. In fact, if you read any of the story thus far, a lot of people, even in the 38 chapters before this, have already fallen prey to that very moment. Hey, here's an opportunity to have what's not yours and it will be great. Sure, why not? Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Day after day after day, his master's wife comes pleading, please, look, we can do this thing. I can't sin in that regard. Joseph seems to be, for all practical purposes, perhaps the most holy and upright man we've seen in Scripture yet. No matter the temptation, no matter how difficult, he continues day after day to refuse. Until this moment, 
But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Whoops. Day after day, he resists this temptation. He honors God. He does what's right. And he's caught in a moment where there are two choices. Do what is wrong or run away naked and look guilty. What do you do? So he runs away. She then is fed up of trying and pursuing and being turned down. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Joseph has these grandiose dreams of what God will do, raising him to this position of leadership and authority and blessing unlike any of his brothers. And instead he's betrayed and sold into slavery. And then in this place of slavery, he does what is right and honorable. And instead of being honored, he gets caught in a trap. And per her lies and her deception and manipulation, He gets in trouble for something he never did. Innocent of a crime, he's sentenced to jail. What happens next? Potiphar, furious with Joseph, doesn't give him a fair trial, doesn't give him a chance to seek justice, doesn't let his story be be heard. Instead, Potiphar throws him not just into jail, but into the deepest, darkest places of that jail, reserved for the highest of criminals, those potentially on death row, from Pharaoh himself. Imagine being Joseph, God, I've done everything right, and here I sit. God, I continue to honor you, and here I am. Where are you, God? I wonder how many times Joseph cried out in the night for God to answer, and all that was left was silence in response. I wonder how many times He didn't sleep at all as he wept there in his jail cell. And yet, answers didn't come. The story continues in chapter 40. While he's there in jail, even in jail, he begins to be elevated to this place of authority. He's put in charge of others there in jail and is continually given responsibility. And then comes this moment There is a cupbearer and a baker of the king who are both thrown in prison. Now, the cupbearer had a very important job. See, if you're a really rich person and you have a lot of authority, there's fear and paranoia that maybe somebody's going to try to kill you. So it was the cupbearer's job to drink the the drink of the pharaoh before he did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And if the cupbearer survived, 
Then he'd pass it off to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh would drink and be merry. He'd know it's okay. And the baker, this very personal one who is there responsible for all the Pharaoh's food, whatever he wishes to eat, it's his job to prepare it. (coughs) They're both thrown in prison. And just like Joseph, they have dreams. So what can these dreams mean? And Joseph, he prays and he receives an interpretation. And he says, well, for you, don't worry. In three days, you're going to be lifted up. You'll be restored to be his cupbearer. Everything's going to go well. So the baker says, do mine. What, what happened to my dream? Yeah, for you, it's not going to be so good. In three days, your head's going to be removed from you and your body's going to be hung on a tree for the birds to eat. Sorry about that. Sure enough, both come true. And Joseph tells the cupbearer, when you are restored, tell Pharaoh about me. Look, I'm here as an innocent man. Tell Pharaoh and he will surely restore me. Let him know and I will get out. In verse 14, it says this. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. But as Joseph's story would have it, that cupbearer, so ecstatic, so excited, so happy to be out of jail and not beheaded like the other guy, forgets all about Joseph. Not just for a couple of days or weeks, for two more years, Joseph rots in that jail. Now imagine for a moment being somebody who has, to the best of your ability, been upright and honorable, done all the right stuff, prayed all the right prayers, loved God with everything in you, and yet your life continues to spiral out of control. Things happen to you that are unjust. Things happen to you that you don't deserve. Pain and sorrow and suffering over and over and over again. I think oftentimes in this place, our natural response is to become really bitter. God, why would you allow this? God, where were you? If you loved me, you wouldn't allow this. If you cared, you would have healed that person. If you were faithful or good or fill in the blank. God, why? so natural for us to look at God and be really disappointed. You see, God doesn't do what we think he should do. He doesn't operate the way we think he should operate. What is good and just and right for him is very different than we can comprehend because you and I are broken, sinful people. We cannot begin to fathom how God can or should operate because we're nothing like him. And our natural temptation when we pray and our answers aren't given, when we seek him and we do the right thing and people aren't restored, our natural temptation can be to blame God. God, surely there's something wrong with you that it doesn't go as I think it should. Surely there's a problem with who you are or what you've said because I 
don't like this answer I'm getting or not getting. But when we turn to that bitterness and we begin to expect that God is just there to do as we think he should, that God is just there to act in accordance with what we think he should act like, when we begin to expect God to be anything or anyone other than who he is, we actually begin to replace God with ourselves. And we begin to say, actually, I am God because I know better than he does. I would never do this or act like that. I surely would have brought this healing and this comfort, whatever that thing was we needed. And when we persist in asking those questions that are unanswered and blaming God with our bitterness and our anger when that pain is real, we actually miss out on what he's really doing. See, we went up that mountain 11 years ago with a 13-year-old boy who couldn't walk. And I expected we would come down that mountain with a 13-year-old boy who could. And I almost missed it. See, along the way, we walked by a man who was sitting there on a rock crying. One of the gentlemen went over and talked to him for a little bit and caught up to us later. It turns out he had hiked for almost 15 years every single day with his wife and his dog. He was a local. He had that advantage. This gentleman in his 70s had lost his wife a couple years earlier, but kept hiking because he had his dog. And then his dog died. And for months, he couldn't bring himself to hike. And this was the first hike he'd taken. And he sat there on that rock that day, wondering, can I do this anymore? It hurts too much to be alone. I just can't keep going. And along came this band of 30 guys carrying this 13-year-old. And he said to that man who went over, he said, I've seen dozens of people carried off the mountain, but I've never seen somebody carried up it. And for that man, that day, our presence on that mountain encouraged him. In his pain and in his sorrow and in his suffering, he could keep doing the very thing he loved because there was hope. We got to the bottom of the mountain in that long, exhausting day, and the hike overall was a pretty easy hike, minus the elevation. But the first, like, 500 or 600 feet of the hike, like not a huge stretch, was straight up and down. It was miserable. And we come down that final stretch and all couple hundred of these guys, 212 approximately, that had been a part of this retreat were waiting at the bottom for Alex to finish the hike. And his dad, who was wildly out of shape and struggling to breathe the whole way up and down, that last 500 feet said, can I carry him? And his dad took the lead carrying his son. And Alex came off that mountain, a 13-year-old who was questioning, who am I? Am I loved? Do I matter? How do I fit in this world? And as he rounded that last corner, there's all these guys cheering him on. There's a smile on his face like I've never seen before. You know what happened to Alex? He never walked. But everything changed. You see, I began to notice in the months and years to follow, his whole attitude changed. He was less dejected and beat down by the fact he was in a chair and more encouraged and inspired by the fact that he was loved. 
and cared for enough to be taken up that mountain. See, if I had been hung up on what I expected God to do, on the healing I had hoped for that I didn't receive, if I'd been hung up on my expectations for who God should have been, I would have missed the little ways God was being faithful to who he is. As Joseph's story turns out, after years of pain and one moment of disappointment after another, after one more pain and sorrow and suffering and God feeling distant, finally, God answers his prayers and lifts him out of that jail and not just out of that jail, elevates him to second in command over all of Egypt. And from that point, in a time of famine, when his family is starving and desperate, they come to him and don't see who he is, don't recognize it's their brother they abandoned. And they bow down before him, asking for mercy. And those very dreams he had as a child came true. Now for you and for me, the dreams we have, the hopes, the expectations, the prayers for healing, those don't always get answered in the same visible way that Joseph's did. But there is a hope and a healing for you and me. Our hope is this. Maybe our prayers will get answered here and now. Maybe our miracle will come in this life. Maybe those dreams will come true now. Maybe they won't. But either way, we have a God who is good. A God who, when we change our expectations and begin to see him as who he is and not what we want him to be. A God who has promised healing even if we don't see it yet. A God who's promised to restore all things even if injustice continues for now. When we see him as this God who is faithful always, you and I can be strengthened and encouraged each day to stand up again today and say, I have not yet seen this healing, but I believe in who you are anyway. I've not seen these dreams realized, but nonetheless, you're working all around me. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. In the New Testament later on, there's a promise given to you and me. And this promise given is that this meal you see before you, when we eat and drink of this meal, we actually proclaim his death until he comes. Which means if we, like Joseph, are in that place of slavery where everything's falling apart, that place in the prison where people have betrayed us, if we're in this place of pain and sorrow wondering, where are you, God? We need to look no further than his death there on a cross, then this meal that he gives, and we can declare with confidence, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't yet see it, even if we're still hoping for and praying for those things, we can declare with confidence, God, I know my answer will come because you died and rose again. I know my healing will happen at some point. That point might come after the resurrection. It might come before. 
but we proclaim his death to say in the face of all disappointment and discouragement and pain and sorrow, you have made a way that all of this will one day be no more. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you that you are a God who brings healing. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises. God, you've given dreams and visions, hopes and aspirations, promises of healing, and sometimes, Lord, all these dreams and visions and promises appear to fall short. So God, in our pain, in our sorrow, in those moments where you disappoint us, teach us to change our expectation that you are good even when we don't yet see it, that you are faithful even when we don't yet know it. Teach us, Lord, how to see in your death and your resurrection all of our strength that whatever may come, whatever may happen next, we would know that you are good and your love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As those who have received much from God, we continue our worship today by collecting an offering. We give back not to get his love, but because we have it. If you came prepared to give today and prefer to do so with cash and check, you can do so in the popcorn buckets as you leave. If you prefer to give electronically, uh, you can do so at thepointknox.com. But we give in this place as a generous response to his love because we know that we have it. And when things aren't going well, we can trust that he's good anyway. However you give and whatever you give, know this, it's not to get his love because you already have it. Thank you. And now we get to the part where you have questions. And before you ask questions, there's one that came in after church on Sunday last week that I want to address. Last week, if you didn't catch it, we had some real heavy hitters, questions about racism and homosexuality and kind of the Christian life. How do these things fit together? And somebody after church asked, the church in the past has recognized that they were wrong with some of the sexist ways they treated women. The church has recognized that they were wrong with some of the views they had towards racism, specifically with slavery, things they justified from scripture taken out of context. And so with that in mind, will there ever come a day when the church recognizes it was wrong in its interpretation of sexuality? Well, I've had a whole week to think about this and here's my answer. I hope so and I hope not. And here's what I mean by that. The church has been wrong in a lot of things. And with sexuality, we've been really wrong. We've condemned and we've guilted, we've shamed, we've pushed people away. And I hope the church recognizes none of that is good. And I hope the church repents and says, we can't do that anymore. And I hope the church creates safe space to be gay and be Christian and wrestle with God's word. And I hope the church lives out our faith where we believe Christ is enough in such a way that those who are gay can also believe that. And with that, I hope that we as a church can always hold true to what the word says. And when it gets really uncomfortable and murky, let's not try to change people or force things, but let's wrestle with it. And let's engage in that truth and say, I don't know these things or what to do. 
And so I hope we change and I hope we don't change because I think going away from scripture is not healthy or good. And I think doing what we've done is also not healthy and good. So there's my answer. I hope that helps. Yeah, there were a couple more questions along with that. Did you want to hit those ones today or um, sure. in a leftovers? So that same person then later in the day was like, I also have more questions. And one of them was, uh, if I can remember correctly. I mean, I, uh, I have it. Do you want me to read one, it? Yeah, you can read it here in just a moment. Oh, yeah. Let's just see how sharp okay, is this okay, yeah, noggin. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> one of them, I think, was asking about uh, marriage in the afterlife and what happens and was like, hey, I'll be really sad if I don't have that kind of love connection with my spouse. Is there marriage and what's to come? Well, that's a really big question that is wildly debated. Um, most people will answer right off the bat, there's no marriage in heaven because of one verse where Jesus is being tested uh, and he's being tested specifically about the resurrection and what happens to somebody who's been married multiple times, whose spouse are they? And they don't even believe in the resurrection, so it's clearly just a trap. And Jesus, he answers, he's like, nobody will be given in marriage or taken in marriage, doesn't matter. And he kind of dismisses it. Based on that one verse, there's a whole world of thought that says there's no more marriage in the afterlife. But I believe that it's possible to faithfully read scripture in such a way that we can see marriage as a gift given before sin entered in. So quite possibly, a gift we still have when sin disappears. And that, to me, as a man who really wants to spend eternity with my wife, sounds really cool. And if I'm wrong, it'll still be great but I'm going to hold on to that hope. And if you want to dive more into how that works or why I think that we can, but I think it's possible you can still be married for all of eternity. And then there was two questions, similar vein of thought about Bathsheba. We talked about that story last week and it's really uncomfortable. This woman who a man in power takes advantage of her and she gets pregnant and then she loses a child. And then the question's basically like, why is it she's never given space to air her grief or her pain in scripture? I don't know. And then the follow-up, like, hey, how come her glorification or being restored is just getting impregnated by the same man again and having another kid who becomes king? And again, my answer is, I don't know. Uh, I think that there was stuff that happened surrounding that that is not included in scripture. I have to hope, because it seems pretty silly, by itself, so. All right, we have a couple more questions. Um, not a ton of time, so they might be, it might be worth it to hit some of these this week, but um, I mean, for- There's no food trucks waiting, so we could be here till two if people want. Yeah, that was Just kind joking. of the response I was expecting. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, this person said, thank you for spreading love. What's the hardest part about pastoral ministry, and what can church- patrons do to encourage their pastor? Oh, first off, thank you. Uh, I think the hardest part about being a pastor for me is uh, it's a lot of weight. Like there's a big responsibility on my shoulders and I'm always going to disappoint somebody. Uh, if, I, if all of you are happy, I'm probably disappointing my wife or my kids. Um, and so there's just a lot of weight on the shoulders of the pastor, and that's not a bad thing. That's a, maybe a good thing. It should be taken seriously. Uh, so what can you do? Well, first and foremost, uh, I really appreciate it when you pray for me, uh, whether that's at home on your own or whether you just come up to me and say, hey, can I pray with you? And you just pray. That's like a huge encouragement. 
I also really find it encouraging when you have ideas and say, hey, I would like to do this. Can we make it happen? And then you go and make it happen. And I would love to say, yeah, let's, let's do a thousand cool things and I only have to do one or two of them. That'd be really awesome. Um, so that would be really awesome and really great. Yeah, what's next? Okay, next question. I've seen a criticism of Christianity against toxic positivity. Kind of like it's a sin to not be happy all the time. That in suffering... Um, in suffering and in not being happy, okay, I got it, okay. That in suffering and not being happy in trust with God, we're not being faithful. Is it okay to be a Christian and still feel down or angry? And how do we balance faith and not being joyful all the time? Faith is not everything being perfect. Faith is trusting in God when things aren't perfect. So um, you absolutely don't need to be positive all the time. In fact, if life is really tough, you should be honest and say, it's really tough right now. If you read two-thirds of the book of Psalms, David's like, life is hard. That psalm we watched today, right? Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? Like, it's okay to be really beat up and worn out. That's why we say it's okay to not be okay. The difference between faith and having a rough time is how do you, how do you turn to God when things are really hard? And I'll be honest, there are times when it's so hard, turning to God is really nearly impossible. And that's where you need people around you who can say, we know that in this season, you don't know how to turn to God, but we're turning to him with you and on your behalf, that you're not alone, and there will come a day when you can turn to him as well. So uh, I hope that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last, I believe this is the last question and then one, one more comment. Um, how do you push past the disappointment in God when you know he's good, but the sadness and disappointment lingers? Oh, um, I find it really helpful. In fact, I sat right here for about an hour and a half with a guy who's going through a lot one day and I didn't know what to say because the pain he's going through, I, I can't relate to and I didn't know how to bring him comfort because all the things I would have said he knew And I said, how about you and I, we just sit here and we stare at that cross. And we just stare. And we did that for like 25 minutes in silence. And my knees started hurting. And we sat here. And tears flowed from both our eyes. See, I find that sometimes in the pain, the best thing to do is just pause and reflect. God, I don't have answers and you are so disappointing right now and I really, really wish that healing would have happened. But I'm gonna look and I'm gonna remember that even now, when none of this makes sense, you're good. And we got up from that place and he's still in a rough place, but there was, I believe, healing and comfort and just sitting and knowing God is here when we have no words to offer to him. So that's what I would encourage you to do. If you're in a place of pain and sorrow, you can acknowledge that, admit it, and maybe at home by yourself, or come sit here. I'll gladly open the space up. I'll gladly sit with you. Just sit and be with God, and that'll be enough. Last comment. Someone texted this in. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. (laughs) Awesome. Church, as you prepare to go today, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.